Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, what do you remember vividly? And what if I told you that every time you recall that memory, you're changing it? UC Davis neuroscientist and leading memory researcher Charan Ranganath says memories are not repositories of past experiences that we can just replay in our heads, as commonly believed. Rather, we draw upon them to make sense of where we are now. So they're moments of active interpretation that shape the choices we make, our worldview, and our identities. We'll talk with Ranganath about how our memory works, and in this age of information overload, how to better remember the things that matter. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It's easy to dwell on our everyday forgetfulness, like forgetting a name or where we put our keys, especially as we get older. But as UC Davis neuroscientist Charan Ranganath points out, we're designed to forget or deprioritize things that don't help us survive or navigate a changing world. For Ranganath, the more interesting and important question then is, why do we remember? which is also the title of his new book, Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. Dr. Tung, Dr. Ranganath, welcome to Forum. Thank you, Mina. I'm super excited to be here. So say more about what you mean by we're designed to forget, because I think we often think of forgetting as a failure of our memory. Yeah. So just to be clear, everyone that to every memory researcher to their knowledge will tell you that everyone forgets. And so you can look at the, you know, for some kinds of meaningless stuff anyway, what you'll find is is that on average, people remember about uh, about only 40% of the details of something that they tried really hard to memorize within 24 hours, right? So if we're all at that level, what that means is, is that much of our experiences are really lost after a few days. And so then the question is, okay, so that does seem to be the design. And so why would you have a system like this if it doesn't work the way we think it's supposed to? If if optimal is remembering everything, then we're not doing a very good job in terms of the way our brain is designed. But you can look at it a little differently, right? So um, if you look at the chemicals that promote plasticity in the brain, things like dopamine, noradrenaline, serotonin, I'm sure many of your listeners have heard these terms before. Um, uh, these promote plasticity, so they allow the uh, memories to solidify, so to speak, and be retained over time. And these are released during times that are biologically important, when we're hungry, or yeah, hungry too, but uh, stressed out, <laughs> uh, angry, uh, afraid, experiencing attachment, you know, all those kinds of things that are biologically important to us, right? 
And I think that says something. And I like to think about this because we're doing computer models of the brain right now. And I think a lot about design principles. So you could design a motor vehicle that's designed to haul around a ton of cargo, right? And that's going to use up a lot of fuel, and it's not going to be very flexible, right? So that's basically chat GPT. <laughs> on the other hand, you could design uh, something that's very agile, can stop on a dime, and uses very little uh, um, energy. And that's where the human brain is. So it's not designed to carry a lot of stuff, but it's designed to be able to use what you have and deploy it at a moment's notice. And it leads us to why we actually remember what we actually remember and why it's so valuable. At a really basic level, you say that it situates us in space and time. Give us an example. Yeah, so I'm actually a great example of this right now. So um, if I were to close my eyes right at this moment and then, or actually, yeah, and then open them again, I would ask myself, where am I? And I know just from looking where I am relative to these four walls, but in a deeper existential sense, where am I? This is my first time in this place. And then I have to remember how I got here. And just that quick moment of remembering where I got here gives me the sense of, ah, oh, okay, I'm relieved. I know where I am. But if you look at people with memory disorders, if they're severe enough, they don't have that sense. They can't remember uh, events in time and space. And so as a result, they're kind of floating. And so even though they can see where they are, they don't necessarily have that sense of where they are. So memory is so incredibly pivotal just for our general functioning and situatedness, but then all the way up to the fact that you say it can construct our sense of identity. How, how does it do that? Well, even from childhood, what we find is, or what researchers find, is the way that parents interact with children about memory is crucial to the stories they tell themselves about who they are. So early in child development, what researchers found is parents who, uh, mothers who really engage with their children about memory, encourage them to elaborate on who they are and collaborate with them. That has a very positive effect on a child's sense of identity and a child's performance in school later on and resilience. Um, likewise, negating children's memories can be very bad uh, for their later development. Um, but one of the things we know is that we evolve over time and personality changes throughout the lifespan. So our ability to accumulate memories, tell our stories and get them told back to us allows us to change and develop. You've talked about how your own career choices are very much a product of memory. Explain how. Oh, this is a good question. So I would say that one of the things that uh, has led me to do what I do is is that, you know, when I was raised in this country, I was always treated as an outsider. And so I always have this kind of an outside view of how people work. My ex expectations of how people work are a little bit geared towards from the outside looking in, like a kid looking through a window at a store. And so that really set me up nicely for going into memory research, I think. Uh, so even though it was a strange experience growing up, I think it was something that really led me down this path. We're talking with Dr. Charan Ranganath, professor at the Center for Neuroscience and at the Department of Psychology and director of the Dynamic Memory Lab 
at UC Davis. His new book is Why We Remember, and I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Have you ever had a vivid memory? What role do you think it's played in your life? Is it a memory maybe that someone has remembered differently? What do you want to know about how our memory works? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can post on our social channels at KQED Forum, or you can give us a call, 866-733-6786-866-733-6786. So I want to ask you just on a basic level, what's happening in our brains when we're forming memories? How does that work? Well, so what we think happens is is that there are neurons in our brain that are basically doing the computation, allowing us to see, hear, and think. And so when we think of forming a memory, there are these neurons that are processing information about what you're hearing just at this moment. And you're looking at me and uh, all of that is changing these connections. So these connections are very plastic. Now, your ability to remember this experience later on depends on being able to activate many of those same neurons. You don't have to activate all of them and it doesn't have to go in the same sequence, but get enough, close enough there that you can pull up some kind of an image of my face or the place and time and you know the hearing, and that allows you to re-experience the event again. And that's why people who really have a vivid memory can feel like they're reliving the past. And I was so struck by the fact that you say that these neurons are competing with each other. Explain that. Yeah. So this goes into that principle of being designed to forget that essentially we tend to think of memories as being stored in a hard drive or something or like photos on our phone. But in fact, we're using this limited pool of neurons to store many memories. And so as a result, if you have memories for things that are similar, like where I put my keys today versus where I put my keys two hours ago, those memories are going to fight with each other. And the only way to win that competition and get the memory you want is if each memory is different enough that when I cue my memory system for what I'm looking for, I can activate just that memory. So that's why some of our most repetitive actions, like setting down our keys or our wallet or our phone, we forget where they are, what we did with them? That's exactly right, because there's so much competition. Another one is uh, people ha- always tell me they have trouble remembering names, right? So uh, Mina, for instance, is a name that I've heard before, and it's not that I don't know the name, but I'm if I see you on the street tomorrow, I'm going to struggle because I have to associate the name with that face. And meanwhile, that name might have been associated with other. You know, I'm thinking of the chef Michael Mina, for instance, but <laughs> but it's like that word is has no logical link with your face, right? And so that competition is there, and you have to figure out ways of beating the competition by constructing some kind of a sense of who you are and tying it to the name. Wow, that's really fascinating. Well, we're getting calls coming in, and let me start with Thomas in Santa Rosa. Thomas, you're on. Yes, good morning. I am very interested in in the uh, short-term memory. I um, have... I uh, had a past of very heavily drinking in the evening and then thinking I was totally in control. I was cooking. I was going out in the gut. I was doing all these tasks, and I would go to bed, and I would wake up, and I'd have no idea if I ate dinner. If I, you know, so I'm, I'm curious about that. Mm. I'm, I'm glad that um, KQED will have this replay again this evening at nine o'clock. I hope I can remember to to listen to it because it's a very important topic to me. Thank you. Thanks, Thomas. Well, yeah, what maybe was happening for Thomas, and and I know that you've pointed 
out that alcohol can be one of the biggest impediments to forming memories. That's exactly right. Yeah. So just for any of your listeners, by the way, if you want to help yourself remember this later on, try to take a moment during the breaks to recall just what we talked about, and then you can listen to it online, and that will help you retain it later. So we can come back to that. Uh, But yes, in response to the caller's uh, question, um, we know that alcohol actually can be an amnesic agent. And so just as uh, many people might, you know, from their college experiences relate to the concept of of a blackout, for instance, if you drink too heavily, you will have exactly what the caller talked about, which is no memory for the events that led up to it. And that's because alcohol can block those changes in the connections between neurons that allow you to, to form new memories. On the other hand, there's also another part of it, which is when you're under the influence of alcohol, you're in a different state of mind. And that state of mind, every the world feels different. It looks different. And so we call that part of the context of a memory. And so there is some data to suggest that even being back in that mental state can help you remember some of those details that happened uh, while you were under the influence. But I would not recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> you're always better off trying to remember things while you're sober. Besides alcohol, what would you say is another major impediment to memory that we engage in quite a bit? Oh, there's so many. Um, I think that one of the biggest ones we do is multitasking. Um, So actually, uh, UCSF researcher Melina Unkefer and Anthony Wagner at Stanford have done a lot of research on this topic. And uh, I've done research from the flip side of it, which is what happens when people do pay attention and try to form memories. And what you find is is that attention plays this pivotal role and not necessarily, you know, in being able to focus on the parts of your experience that will be memorable. But it works if you can focus on the details, the things that make this moment different from everything else. And so often we blow that up. Like if I was just switching between talking to you and reading my email, every time there's going to be this cost of my attention where I'm catching up. And so sometimes we don't remember because we were never really there in the first place. Mm, Wow. Makes me wonder. I mean, when I'm doing a live show, I'm sort of multitasking on steroids, so we'll see how that's affecting my brain. We actually are gonna go right into a break right now, but I wanna talk more about it afterwards. Okay. We're talking about why, remember, stay with us. This is Forum, I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, The smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about why we remember and how we form memories with Dr. Charan Ranganath, who's written a new book called Why We Remember, Unlocking Memories, Power to Hold On to What Matters. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. What do you want to know about how our memories work or our memory works? Have you ever had a vivid memory? What role has it played in your life? Is it a memory that someone else remembered differently? Have you ever questioned whether you're remembering something accurately yourself? Tell us your questions, your experiences by emailing forum at kqed.org, posting on our social channels at KQED Forum. We're on X, Instagram, our digital community on Discord. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So just before the break, Charan, you were talking about how multitasking can be a huge impediment to forming lasting memories. And you were talking about how you are talking to somebody, then checking your phone, then doing something else, maybe responding to an email. But I'm curious, what exactly is happening that makes it such an impediment? Like, are you just forming a lot of sort of meaningless memories, I guess? Yes, that's actually a great way of putting it. So um, we know that when people switch back and forth between different tasks, it creates what's called an event boundary, which means that it's like your brain is taking your continuous experience, breaking up into these little events. And so what happens when we shift back and forth, one of the main reasons, one of the reasons why it's so bad is, is that we create these little events in our brain instead of one bigger event that's more rich and focused. And so you can imagine if you're just trying to remember this conversation, but really you've been doing email and so forth. Now you got little bits and pieces of the conversation and to string it all together every time you're going to have to go back and try to recall some previous part of the event, but you're not always going to succeed, right? So you end up with a bunch of fragments and imagine you just broke a glass or something and, and now it's shattered everywhere. You try to put this all back together. It's going to be pretty tough, right? And so that's what we're doing essentially every time we try to multitask and remember something that we've experienced. But tech is also this massive documenter of our lives in terms of texts that we receive, in terms of pictures that we're constantly taking. And so I wonder if you would say that technology or that role of documentation that it provides is contributing to us being able to remember better? It could, but often it does not, and often detracts from our memory. So I think of like uh, Instagram stories and and Snapchat as a metaphor for the transients of digital memories in some ways, then it's like it disappears in 24 to 48 hours, right? And I think sometimes we do this to ourselves by trying to mindlessly document everything, you know, so there's proliferation of Instagram walls. So let's just get a picture by the wall and let's move on, right? And so what it does is it takes us away from the experience. And so I find that in general, almost every question about memory can be reduced to less is more. And uh, so taking a few pictures that focuses you on the sights, the sounds, gives you a reminder. You can you can think of it like a little cue that you can go back to, and you're planting this cue in memory so that later on you can look at the photo and go back. But that's another thing is we often don't go back to our pictures, so it's a bit of a wasted opportunity. Mm. So if we're documenting the child's recital or or school concert or a major musical concert that we went to, we may not even really be remembering it meaningfully just by the process of being that one step removed. 
Yes, yeah, that's right. So you might be depriving yourself of the emotions which give you that rich experience of remembering. Um, you might be depriving yourself of seeing everything around you, of hearing the details. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. You can actually use the camera literally to focus you. So studies of photography and video show that yes. if people are actually you know, just mindlessly documenting, it's bad for memory. But if you can use it as a way of keeping you on for what's actually going to be memorable, then it can actually help you. Can you talk about how emotions interact with memory or memory formation that makes them last? Yes. Yeah, so uh, emotions tend to be related to biologically significant experiences, right? So if something scares you, that's something that your brain wants to hold on to so that you will not be able to be in that danger again. If something stresses you out, you want to be able to hold on to that memory. If something gives you an unexpected reward, like you find out you just found a great pizza place opened up next door. You know, you want to, your brain should be able to grab that. And so these chemicals like dopamine and noradrenaline help you by stabilizing these memories. Hmm. Let me go to caller Deirdre in Berkeley. Hi, Deirdre. You're on. Hi, um, this is Deirdre. Uh, I'm actually coincidentally on my way to an appointment, first appointment for memory. Um, and <laughs> I, was, I was listening avidly. Uh, I have a twin brother who has an excellent memory. I have always had a poor memory, and I'm trying to, I'm 64, trying to get to the reason as to why. So the early childhood experience would have been the same. I, is it biology? Is it the first earlier Kaiser appointment? She said maybe things don't just imprint. She's not concerned about dementia because I've always had a poor memory. I just want to, like, I don't remember my son's upbringing. <laughs> I don't remember various things um, that concern me. So I wonder how, is it biology or what maybe the um, speaker can uh, comment on the fact, same environment, twins, two completely different types of memories. Mm. That's it. Any insights? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very rich question, actually. So there's a number of factors that can happen. So if you think about just the basics of, you know, you did have the same environment, but you also have different perspectives on the world. You're literally seeing the same event differently. You have different emotions at any given moment. And those affect how we remember the experiences later on. So your memories are filtered through your own beliefs and your sense of who you are. And so unless you and your brother literally were the same person seeing the same things, you're going to have different memories to remember things the same, different ways. Now, we don't know why some people remember some things better than others. That's actually one of the big gaping holes in memory research. Uh, but um, there are factors, certainly, that can influence different people's memories. If you're under chronic stress, you're highly distracted. Um, in older adults, depression is a big one. I used to test older adults during my clinical training, and I found about at least half of the adults coming in who were worried about Alzheimer's, it turned out they were suffering from clinical depression. So it can really look like uh, memory disorders. So anyway, I wish you the best of luck, Deirdre, for your appointment. Yeah, thanks for the thanks for the call. Let me go next to Martha in Menlo Park. Martha, you're on. Oh, thank you for taking my call. The, the previous twin um, almost stole my thunder because I'm an elderly person with an older sister in her 80s and a younger brother in the 70s, and we have different memories of early childhood. And when we get together, we have different memories of cousins and uncles and aunts. And, um, of course, this is all pre 
World Wide Web when it took took, took over and everyone was doing things on the web. I mean, this is just hmm. old-fashioned memories from 50 years ago, and we really remember differently. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I'm wondering, John, if you can talk about why that might happen, but also how memories can actually be changed by the act of remembering. You actually just got to exactly the response (laughs) I was going to give. Yes, that's right. So we tend to think of us replaying the past. But in fact, what happens is when you open up a memory for the past, you can actually change that memory in certain ways. And so what happens is is if there's a memory for something and you retell the story over and over and over again, each time you recall it, there's going to be a little bit of memory, not just for the original event, but every other time that you've tried to remember that original event. And so people's memories can stray from the original experience. We talked about photos, looking back at photo albums, for instance, and hearing other people's stories can change the way you think about things. Even your developing sense of self, that is that now as you've gotten older, you've learned about your siblings' personalities much more, you've learned about your uncle, and that changes your beliefs about them, and that is a different way in which we filter our memories later on. So what you're talking about is a totally normal thing about how you know siblings always tell me that they remember the same things from their childhood very differently, and and it's pretty normal. How do our goals, what we're seeking, affect the way that we remember something? Well, so what happens is, is that when we look for memories, we often constrain the search. And so, and that's a good thing, right? So if you're trying to remember, like if I'm trying to remember how I got to this place and I wanted to walk back to my hotel or something like that. I don't want to remember my conversation with the driver who brought me here as much. I want to focus on my memories for the sights and sound. And so our goals play a big part in constraining what we recall and how we recall it. Um, And then as we get older, that becomes a little bit more difficult. We have trouble constraining our search. So we sometimes recall things that are irrelevant and have trouble finding the things that that we want to get at the time. Yeah. Are we seeking evidence that will support a particular worldview, a particular perspective, a particular argument? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So I I sometimes say that if you want to find evidence for something in memory, you will likely find it, um, whatever it is you're looking for. Because what happens is those beliefs will constrain your search process. And so we tend to remember things that reinforce our beliefs. And we tend to have a harder time recalling things that don't go along with our beliefs. And there's lots of research on this, which means that it can reinforce our biases if we're not aware of it. I mean, I I always try to tell people, if you want to be accurate, try to remember things that are inconsistent with your beliefs. In some ways, that's what therapy was all about when I would do therapy in the clinic. Cognitive therapy was about getting people to recall information that was inconsistent with these beliefs that were holding people back. Is this why you say that memory... I think you even said in one interview, has nothing to do with the past. It's all about the present and the future. That's right. Yeah. I I would maybe say I wouldn't go so far as to say nothing to do with the past, but it is. I might be misquoting. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, that's fine. That's fine. I think it's uh, I think I would say that the purpose of memory has nothing to do with the past. The purpose of memory is to navigate the present and the future. Right. Because from a biological perspective, the past is over. You survived it. It's not necessarily going to affect anything. unless it changes your way of looking at things and understanding the world right now. We're talking with Dr. Tom Ranganath of UC Davis, a neuroscientist and a leading memory researcher. His new book, Why We Remember, is about unlocking memory's power 
to hold on to what matters. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions and comments. And Scott writes, I'm curious as to why we have a need to remember. I can understand the evolutionary need to recall what is safe, nutritious, dangerous, etc. It would be vital for staying alive. But what is the evolutionary purpose of remembering a name from a childhood teacher? What happened in 1872? Moreover, what is our need to be remembered? Especially considering that we're the only species that is conscious of our own demise. That's a deep question. Uh, I'll give you hopefully a deep enough answer. Um, one of the biggest differences between humans and many other animals is we're social animals. And we have this prolonged period of development before we could reproduce and then a prolonged period of maturation after we're no longer capable of reproducing. So that means that the way memory is going to work in our lives is very different than a species that's not social and doesn't have these weird developmental trajectories, right? So social factors play a huge role in what we remember. And you can even see if people have recorded from hippocampal neurons. The hippocampus is an area of the brain that's important for memory. And if you record from brain activity in these areas, what you can find in animals even is that they'll actually record memories for observations of other mice or rats, let's say, doing things that they're just watching. So the, and if you look at language, um, you can argue that language, it's very function and music, it's very function is to communicate memories to others. So I feel like that plays a big role in uh, answering the question that came in about why it is that we remember these things that seem to be not biological because memory connects us to our social world. As long as we're getting deep here, I've also um, read you saying that memory gives us an illusion of stability. How does it do that and why is that important? Well, so if you think about it from any given at any given moment, anything can happen. Right. A giant asteroid just could just come in and obliterate San Francisco right now. Right. And we don't know. We don't have this ability to know every possible thing that could happen in the future. But we do engage in this everyday fortune telling because our brain is constantly trying to generate predictions about what's going to come up next. And so what happens is, is that we remember things that allow us to predict. And we often do a very good job of it, right? So you're probably sitting here thinking, okay, what's he going to say in about 30 seconds from now? And you're using that prediction, and often you're going to be right. And so this is the everyday fortune telling we do with memory. So in some sense, there's, it's, there's truth to it. But on the other hand, it's, it works if you just assume that there are certain rules of what's happening, and you assume that on the, my context is fairly stable, but anything could happen, right? So it is kind of an illusion, too. Let me go to caller Brad in Foster City. Brad, you're on. Hi, good morning, you guys. Uh, okay, so my question is more about, I think, a practical in today's terms. I see, like, for example, I think something you go through that's tra very traumatic, let's uh, say a, a great injustice or wrong that was done to you. My question is, how can you, I, I would love to ha not have that memory, or maybe that's not as realistic, be able to shape my current emotional triggers. Like when I think about these injustices that were done, for example, to me, like I'd like to, I would really love to not have the, the, the current emotion of, of frustration or anger or negative emotion. So, hmm. and also I just think a lot of people who are maybe, you know, doing terrible things that we hear about in society, I also wonder how many of them are being triggered by it in, in a current emotional state to, by past memories. So, so in a nutshell, I'd like to know how to, how to, how can I reshape or reshape, remember 
reform, or if not obliterate, but I, that's probably not practical, but reshape that memory so it doesn't conjure uh, current mm. negative emotion. And that, that's my current my question. Thank you. Brad, thank you. Yeah, so such a rich question and one that I think many listeners can relate to. The emotions that we have that accompany a memory are in some ways separable from the content of the memory itself. And so I would argue that you do not want to forget that something bad happened to you, but you may want to be able to sort of diffuse that bomb and be able to remove some of the radioactivity that's associated with these negative memories. And uh, one way, you know, it's easy for me to say, it's hard for people to do, but the more people can engage in trying to change their perspective when they recall these traumatic events, uh, the better it will be in terms of being able to see the mem- the experience as maybe more of a learning experience or a growth experience. And again, I, I don't want to trivialize traumatic memories, but I used to work in the clinic, and that's what I did when I was doing my clinical training was really working with people and processing their memories and giving them an external perspective. And so people who are in support groups or group therapy, a big part of that process was people in exchanging these these memories that they had never shared with anyone before. And by connecting the dots between different people's stories, you could come up with a new way of looking at things and see your own experience from a different perspective and change something from being like, well, this was a shameful experience to being like, this is evidence that I'm resilient because I survived this, or this is evidence that you know maybe I made a mistake and I can learn from it, and it's a growth experience. Um, that's very hard, but I think this is also maybe where psychedelics are having an effect right now in uh, trauma, like PTSD treatment and, and MDMA. I don't know for sure, but they promote plasticity, and those experiences dissociate you. They allow you to experience memories from a distance, and so... I really think that the bottom line in all of this is is that our memories can be updated, but we often reinforce them and re-experience the trauma. And so I think it's really crucial that we can rely on support from other people to help us reframe and reshape these memories. We're talking about why we remember how our memory works. We're taking your questions and your experiences of memories at 866-733-6786 at the email address forum at kqed.org on our social channels at KQED Forum. We're talking with Charan Ranganath, professor at the Center for Neuroscience and Department of Psychology and director of the Dynamic Memory Lab at the University of California at UC Davis. You, our listeners, are asking us what you want to know about how our memory works, telling us about uh, the way that you and others remember the same events differently. If you have thoughts on why we remember the, the question that uh, Dr. Ranganath put out there, share that as well. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? 
You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. We're talking with Dr. Charan Ranganath about why we remember. I'm Mina Kim, and this is Forum. Dr. Ranganath is a neuroscientist at UC Davis, and he writes, Our memory is much, much more than an archive of the past. It is the prism through which we see others and the world. That's in his book, Why We Remember. And Dr. Ranganath, I want to ask you, what happens to our memory as we age? What's that relationship? What is happening there? So as we get older and we progress from uh, young adulthood into advanced age, what you find is memory for events or episodic memory on average tends to go down. Now, there's a lot of variability. If you follow up the same person over time, what you find is there's some people who are just super agers who seem to be just rock solid with their episodic memory. And some people, there's just a real drop off and decline. And we're still trying to figure out what it is. There's a bunch of factors that can contribute things like a lot of its health conditions, things like diabetes, uh, you know, alcohol use, diet, all these factors, as well as lifestyle factors like are you exercising? And so right now there's been a big shift from thinking about age in terms of like this decline and just characterizing it to protective factors and brain health. And so this has been a real exciting change. Um, I'll just add that not all aspects of memory go down with age. For instance, your knowledge about the world, uh, what's called semantic memory, remains pretty solid as people get older. You wrote a piece for the New York Times. This was after special counsel. Hers report about President Joe Biden describing him as an elderly man with a poor memory. One of the reasons that he did not prosecute him for classified documents that Biden had kept. You titled that piece or maybe the New York (laughs) Times did, but it's titled I'm a neuroscientist. We're thinking about Biden's memory and age in the wrong way. So what did you feel like we were getting wrong? Yeah, so I will say that Times did come up with that <laughs> title. It was a little pretentious for me, but <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do. I did feel that way that we were thinking about it the wrong way because many of the th- the things that people were talking about as memory errors were not memory errors per se. So things like mixing up, you know, President of Egypt versus President of Mexico, which is something he said in the press conference after reading the report. Obviously, he knows the difference between president between Egypt and Mexico, but he grabbed the wrong word. And this is something that happens very more commonly. <laughs> more commonly, I just did it myself. This is something that happens more commonly as you get older, and so uh, those kinds of gaffes more reflect trying to a slowness in selecting the right word or a switching of words, and then being slow to catch the error. Um, and then there's a separate thing which I talked about in the article, which is there's a difference between forgetting with a lowercase f and forgetting with a capital F. And what I mean by that is many times we just have what's called retrieval failure. We have the memory there, but we just can't find it. Right? And that's forgetting with a lowercase that's f. That's forgetting with a lowercase f, exactly. And that's a more benign kind of forgetting that happens much more commonly as we get older. Um, then there's forgetting with a capital F, which would be not having any memory for what happened at all. And that would be something that also happens, you know, again, everybody does experience this in terms of names and faces, or I don't remember meeting this person, you know, one month later. But it happens more commonly with age, but it's not a huge increase compared to what the lowercase f forgetting. Uh, the second kind is more the more worrisome one if it happens very frequently. 
Um, and I didn't see anything in the special counsel's report about Biden having those kinds of issues. And, and you know, let's be clear, this is not something that's a partisan issue. One in six Americans are over the age of 65, right? And uh, um, uh, former President Trump equally has many of these gaffes. And I think this is something that people just need to be educated about, I think, because it really hits on some stereotypes about aging. Uh, but also, I think we need to just understand what these abilities are and then ask ourselves, what are the abilities that are important, right? So compassion is something that doesn't change that much with age. And that's something that can be very important for a president or the ability to regulate your own emotions. That's something that could be very important, too. Uh, knowledge about the relevant facts of who's who and what are the what's the legislative process. Those are things that are also important. And so I don't want to underestimate the importance of memory. I think it's hugely important, but there are so many factors. Yes. And so retrieval failures, you're saying, may not necessarily mean that someone isn't fit to lead. Is that what you're getting That's at? exactly right. That's I exactly see. right. Well, let me go to caller Simon in Burlingame. Simon, you're on. Hi. How are you? I'm well. What's on your mind? Um, well, a couple of things. A, I have a very poor memory. And, of course, my wife has a great memory. And I'm not just talking about the things that I do. Uh, but um, so my couple of questions here. Uh the difference between men and women and memory, because I'm noticing uh, there is quite a difference. And then the other is uh, use of the phone, uh, iPhone or whatever phone you have, to remember things so that, hmm. you know, it seems to be easier to remember yeah. these days as opposed to forgetting. Simon, thanks. So are there gender differences in terms of memory or ability to remember? We don't really know. Um, what I would say is, is that, you know, so right now, uh, women's health issues have been criminally neglected in uh, in looking at uh, memory functions, for instance. I know Maria Shriver has been very active in trying to promote women's health with Alzheimer's disease. Emily Jacobs at UCSB has been studying this, but it's really not known uh, to the degree that we would like. We do know that there are changes that are very dynamic, meaning like changes over the course of the menstrual cycle. There are changes that are associated with stress responses, for instance, that are that are may differ between men and women, and again, vary according to the cycle. Um, there's issues related to childbirth. I think many uh, women can relate to baby brain, <laughs> which is that first couple of years of just having a little bit of a memory loss, and that seems to be related to certain aspects of changes in brain function. Uh, menopause is probably the big one. Um, we are finding out that, in fact, estrogen seems to have a protective uh, effect on the brain. And so many researchers are advocating for estrogen supplementation as people get older. So I know this doesn't speak to the caller's question. Um, I might just add something, which is that often people will supplement each other's memories in interesting ways in couples. And so um, it may not be that the caller's memory is so bad, but it might be bad for the things that his spouse is good at and vice versa. Simon also mentioned the phone. And so I guess what is technology's best use, would you say, in terms of helping us remember? What is it most useful in doing for us? Um, and what are some tips to to ensuring that memories remain 
in our brains. You, you've you touched on this a little bit here and there with regard to at the breaks, think about what you just heard so that I can stay in your memory. But but I think there are other things. There are lots of other things you talked about in your in your book that can just help us hold on to, as you say, what really matters. Yes, I think that there's uh, quite a few things that we can do, um, including using our phone for this process. Um, I like to say, first of all, that I'm all for outsourcing the most tedious effects in memory. So my phone has a photographic memory. I don't. (laughs) So I love to use uh, my phone for appointments. I love to use my phone for phone numbers and so forth. And I don't feel bad that I don't remember people's phone numbers anymore because if I'm using my phone, I got all the phone numbers there, right? Um, but on the other hand, like you said, it's the things that matter that we want. We want to remember the experiences with people and so forth. And so uh, some one part of this, I think, is you know, memory is good as a resource, but you don't always want to live in the world of memory. And sometimes we daydream and we're out of it, we're planning, we're anticipating, and so we don't actually allow ourselves to experience these moments. And so uh, the experience, though, is what you'll hopefully be able to capture a bit of when we remember. So part of it is just literally being there, and there's certain practices mm-hmm. like mindfulness practices that may help with that. Um, another thing, though, is is that if something really matters, remind yourself of it. And I don't mean remind yourself like literally regurgitate it, like watch a video over and over, but rather give yourself a little cue and then try to build that memory in your head. And then you can watch the video or whatever. And what's great about that technique is that when our brain struggles to pull up those memories, what happens is you're giving your brain an opportunity, so to speak, to repair those memories and make them more accessible. So it's why it's good that our memories change when we recall them, because it gives us a chance to strengthen the memories that we want to come back to over and over again. So we talk about that in terms of testing yourself, being able to try to pull something up and then giving yourself the thing that you want. And that's much better. That feeling of struggling is what you want in terms of being able to repair and strengthen memories. Mm, Testing. John, is there something that you worry about forgetting or that you are afraid of forgetting something or someone? Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I wouldn't necessarily be say that I'm afraid of forgetting some. Well, I'm definitely afraid of forgetting most of the people that I meet because then they come back to me and they're like, do you remember meeting me? So I'll have students uh, who like I met at, at a poster session and then years later they'll say, oh, I remember the first time I met you. And I'll be like, I sure, tell me. <laughs> you know? So there's that. But then there's also, I think, I do worry about like the times when, you know, when I was a young assistant professor, I was so stressed out, chronically stressed. And so I don't have that many vivid memories of when my daughter was young. And uh, that's, you know, it makes me kind of sad. And so I do worry now, I think a lot now about what choices that I'm going to make now that will allow me to have a memorable life later on. Now that I'm kind of in my 50s, I think a lot about making the most of the next coming years, not in terms of what I do, but how I will remember those experiences. Let me go to caller Julie in Los Gatos. Julie, you're on. Um, Hi, doctor. I'm fascinated with this subject, and you're doing a great job explaining everything. Um, I kind of have... um, couple things to say that are the opposite of what you're saying in that I have had since I was born 
um, a very, very strong visual memory. And a lot of people say that I ha- that I'm like a visual mensa. And I, um, for an example of this would be like when my, my dad passed away a couple of years ago and I was working with a grief counselor and I had, uh, I had so many, like millions mm. of memories of my dad. And it was almost, it, 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 it was hard for me to turn them off. Mm. So my grief was so much more profound. Um, and so, and I noticed that even with my grown children and um, with my husband, um, my friends, my teachers, people have always said this to me. I scare people on the street because I'd never forget a face. So I will stop them and go, oh, I, I met you at that dinner party last year. And they're, they don't remember me at all. So yeah. One, a quest, yeah. So a question I have is, um, number one, was I genetically born with maybe like a more uh, a hyper like um, hi, um, hippocampus or campus part of my brain. And then secondly, the only time that I do feel like maybe a little part of my memory gets going and it's not the visual part is I do take Ambien to sleep. And I, is there any research on mm. people that take Ambien? Um, is that going to start um, shortening some of my, not my visual, but some of my other memories? Julie, thanks. Oh, there's a lot in that question, of course. I think uh, I want to be clear that I'm not negating people's different abilities with memory. And again, we don't really know. So uh, there's a lot of variability between people, but some people report having a very visual memory and some people report having no ability to visualize information in memory. And so as a result, we think that uh, there are differences, but that doesn't mean that somebody has a photographic memory. Uh, What it means is that they capture a lot of that visual experience. So um, I'm guessing that there are still a lot of meaningless pieces of information like temporary passwords and stuff that your caller would not remember. And so, yeah, many things are transient. And uh, at the same time, some people do have an exceptional detail for what matters, um, which can be difficult. Uh, Last thing I'll just say is we can come back to sleep later on, but it is a hugely important question. Well, let me remind listeners that this is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. In terms of sleep, yes, the role that it plays, the significance and importance of it with regard to memory. Yeah, so the caller mentioned Ambien, and so I'm not a sleep scientist, but Matt Walker, who wrote Why We Sleep, has actually uh, studied this, I believe. And uh, one of the things they talk about is that Ambien doesn't necessarily mimic normal sleep. And so normal sleep, what is that? Well, we know that during a big night of sleep, your brain is actually hard at work. It's not just dead sitting around waiting for you when when you get up. And so one of the things that happens is it's flushing out toxins like the amyloid proteins that build up over the course of a day. And that is a big and very important function, especially as we get older. Our sleep tends to decline. Our sleep quality tends to go down. And so the importance of that sleep is huge. Uh, But on top of that, we know that memories seem to be replayed during sleep, and the brain seems to play around with different experiences. And so one theory is is that strengthens certain memories so that they're able to last. And another uh, theory, which I like a little bit more, is that it allows you to be able to get the big picture and be able to take these little experiences and put them together into a tapestry of knowledge that you can actually use in your everyday life. 
And that might be why some people talk about being able to solve a problem or having a more creative idea that pops up after sleep because it's kind of finding the big picture. Well, the listener writes, I'm an identical twin and a few years ago was telling a story from early adulthood. My sister indignantly claimed that happened to her, not me. And years later, we still don't know who was actually there. I remember being there and so does she. How does it happen that we absorb so fully someone else's story as a memory? Well, for some people, their imagination can be very rich, for instance. And so just the act of my sharing a memory to you, for you to understand it, you'll sometimes put yourself in my place just to be able to kind of understand how I felt. And so if you're very empathetic, if you have a very rich, vivid imagination, it can be very hard to tell the difference between someone else, especially someone you're very close to, like a twin sibling, uh, tell the difference between something that you thought about their experience versus your own. Um, and this speaks to a bigger question in memory, which is we don't remember everything. And so a big savings that we have, the economy of memory, is to be able to just get the newest, most kind of distinctive information about an event and then glue it together with a dose of imagination and be able to, so we don't replay every moment of the past, we get a few bits and pieces, and then we imagine how the past mm. could have been. And what that means, though, is when we just imagine something and we don't remember it, it's very hard to tell the difference between things we thought about and things that actually happened. So for me at work, I'm always thinking about, oh, I got to respond to this email, and then I go on to something else. And then I remember actually having sent the email. And it's not because I, it's not a false memory, so to speak. It's a true memory that I thought about it. I just didn't do it. What are you hoping people will take away from what you share in your book in this conversation about why we remember? I think what I would like people to take away from it is, on the one hand, their expectations are not necessarily in line with what we're actually built to do. So I think a lot of people, including some callers, said, I have a very poor memory. And I think we should re-examine what's optimal because sometimes it leads us to just feel bad about ourselves, leads us to feel incomplete. But at the same time, I think as I, I talk about in the book, what Danny Kahneman called the remembering self and this idea that, you know, our remembering is how we make our decisions. It calls the shots in terms of our beliefs and so forth. And I think there's so much that people can do to actively take a role so that memory's not in the driver's seat, but it's a good co-pilot. A good co-pilot. Well, thank you so much for being on with us today, Dr. Ranganath. John Ranganath's book is Why We Remember, Unlocking Memory's Power to Hold On to What Matters. Also, my thanks to Tessa Paoli for producing today's segment. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. 
Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2. New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.